Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate people in and around the wonderful world of product management. If that sounds like your cup of tea, why not put the kettle on and join me and some of the finest thought leaders and practitioners in the world on onenightinproduct.com, where you can check the back catalogue, sign up to the newsletter, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we speak all about psychological safety, and we get our organisational credit cards out and talk all about paying off our human debt and how quickly we need to make those repayments. We talk about some of the barriers to maintaining a good work culture and what you might do if you find yourself working somewhere tricky. We also consider the eternal difficulties of measuring any of this stuff and how you might prove that any of your efforts to change it are doing anything to change it at all. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Products. So my guest tonight is Dwena Blomstrom. Dwena's a speaker, author, fintech influencer and company founder who claims to have come up with the concept of emotional banking, although given some of the conversations I used to have with my bank manager, I think that might be a close-run thing. Dwena started out studying psychology before moving into tech and wondering why it seemed everyone was lying and no one was pointing out the emperor's new clothes of superficial employee engagement initiatives. She's since written two books, with another on the way, and is here tonight to talk about psychological safety, human debt, and how the schism between tech and the business is one of the biggest problems we face at work. Hi, Dwena. How are you tonight? Hello. I am in awe of your intro and humbled <laughs> and terrified because we will never, we, we start with, oh, hello, everyone. Let us continue the communication conversation. <laughs> Congratulations. You sound amazing. Well, thank you very much. That's the first time I've ever been told that by anyone. But also, I will say that was one of the tame ones. I could have dug out a lot more background info about you if I wanted to and just cut some fun facts. But, you know, I thought I'd keep it respectful for a woman of your stature. <laughs> I take some shade about the stature conversation. I hope that's not uh, <laughs> luck. There's no way that anything that you could have said or dug out on the internet uh, hasn't been dug out previously. <laughs> and I am certain more will show up in time. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not horribly afraid of anything. Well, what's this space. But first things first, you are the founder and CEO of People Not Tech. So I'm already anticipating you don't have any computers at all and you do it all on paper pads like in the good old days. But what specific problem are you solving for the world with People Not Tech? Well, it's the product way of solving the same problem that I'm solving with my speaking, with my writing, with my breathing, with my <laughs> relationships at work, which is the fact that people in the workplace today, in the knowledge space in particular, in technology in particular, are doing the wrong type of work. They have the wrong type of skills and they are doing the wrong type of work. The work has to change from operational and from technical only to become human, emotional, behavioral, to become cultural work. And that work has to be for everyone. I call it the human work, but you can call it whatever you like. It's the bits we aren't doing today, all the other stuff. And I am passionate about doing that. And the product company, if you've, you've mentioned people not tech, is an ironic name because what it does is actually gives the people the space to be doing this in the product in a regular fashion that keeps that team doing the human work. That's all it does. And in the process, it tightens psychological safety, it tightens all kinds of behaviors you need to have in a team. But in short, it changes the behavior of the team 
in a way that makes that team a cultural asset. What I do all day, every day by talking to you, for instance, is tell people, please, please, <laughs> please make people's lives that work better by letting them work on themselves. No, I agree with all of that. And I'm hoping to at least contribute in some small way. But I'm going to have to try and pin you down a little bit now and ask how specifically your platform does that. Right. Well, that's, I like that because people keep thinking we're all about the talk and everyone's about the talk in this page. And, <laughs> but we do right in particular. The objections from the, from the agile and tech community have always been 100%. You don't need to sell me to what psychological safety is. We're not, this is not an HR audience we have to discuss it with. I, I lie. The HR audience might know, but there's no exact audience. So we know what it is. We know why we need it. Why are you saying that this thing is going to make more of it? And we didn't at first. We didn't know how. We, we went through any number of iterations. We tried all kinds of things. We tried to work on leaders. We tried to work on uh, emotional intelligence. We tried, all of these things are necessary and need to be worked on. But we need to find something that made quick change fast so that that enterprise could go, oh, this is the thing we need to do. I will allow my people to do it. I will help my people. I will empower my people. I will make my people autonomous and I will make my people happier by letting them use it. And what it does is practically allow people to express themselves, to take an action that will correct that behavior or help that behavior, and then see the effect of that action in their data. And when you close that measurement loop and people see the effects of their own work, it is magical. I've seen people cry. I've seen people transformed. The effects of the work in behaviors are a magical thing to witness. And I believe we can make all of our tech people do this work themselves if we empower them. So this is a platform that's used by employees, by managers, by HR teams to effectively, I know it's a dirty word these days, but manage the interactions between the teams and between people within the company and understand the interactions and the results of those actions and the, the management that they're doing. Is it something along those lines? I feel like that was a very smart runway so i appreciate it no not at all <laughs> this is not for hr at all this is for the team at the team level at the bubble level this has nothing to do with anyone else no one needs to approve it no one cares about the systemic approach how look i believe in team topologies all this stuff is valuable i believe in generative cultures but all of this stuff is fluffy it means nothing Santa Claus is not going to come and, and puke a generative culture upon your enterprise. And tomorrow morning, you're going to wake <laughs> now up. Now there's an image. So, yeah, it's not going to happen, right? So what, what we do need to do is smaller things that move the needle. They show the people that if they, they start doing some of the stuff, it will move the needle. It cannot be that anyone waits for HR who, let's face it, it's admin only these days, no matter how much we're fighting to keep them out of it. And it cannot be that we're waiting for anyone else to do it. These are things that team can and will do at their own level if we just empower them. So no, nothing to do with HR. No one monitors anyone else. No one needs to know. This is for only the team to know and to act on. Sounds good. Well, maybe we'll come back to HR in a bit because I know you talk about HR in your book as well. But I also do have to ask, I mean, you're a technology platform then in this case, despite the name of the company, you're using technology to enable all this stuff. But is it purely a technology play or are you also going in kind of doing consulting work with these companies as well and kind of using that as an add-on and maybe even sort of helping them to use the platform and white-gloving them and, and helping them to understand some of the specifics that they have to do within their context? Or is it purely a technology play? I will be honest and say I have tried really, really hard to make it purely a technology play and I have failed. I will be very honest. It is just <laughs> not doable. So one of the asks I had when I realized, 
all these tech companies and all of the companies I love so deeply have human debt. And we, we can get to the definition of that if you like, you know what? But when I realized that fact, I wanted us to make something that is an artifact for change when we are not in the room. That was my only ask. I said to my co-founders, I do not want another consultancy, that the pain and the suffering of going into a room, <laughs> telling people what's what, them going, no, totally, I get you. And then out the door and everyone forgets, I cannot take that. I want a product or a piece of software or something. Just like Jira, I said to them, taught people process. Not just like Jira, surely, come on. Not like just like Jira, not just like Jira, <laughs> just like any type of platform, if we're going to be elegant. That, but let's be honest, right? Communication has staples from Slack and so on. Jira has moved us along in understanding bloody process in technology, like Trello has moved us along in understanding process in non-technology. We needed these things to be the artifact of this is a thing we need, right? And they did the job. Now, we need that same type of platform for the human work. How else are we going to do it? It's not something we know how to do. No one came from school knowing how to do a self-assessment of their emotions or an understanding of why the team is behaving that way. We need to learn and to learn together so that we regenerate. It's our only existent remaining advantage is this, the humanity of it all. Everything else that doesn't require the humanity of it all, we can get through ChatGP 120. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's a horrible dystopian future that hopefully we won't reach quite yet. But you've had a career spanning multiple companies. You're well known in fintech circles, kind of where you made your reputation in the first place. You built quite the reputation in that world. Top 10 City AM power influencer, top three most influential woman in the city. You've been and done it all. So I'm assuming that there's a statue of you in the city somewhere. But, <laughs> where, but when did you start thinking that there was a problem with not just what we do at work, but how we do the work? And why did you start getting interested specifically in solving that problem? Thank you for that question. I don't know that there's, there's not enough statues, I'll tell you that much. And, <laughs> I mean, not yet, not no, yet. and there probably never will be because one of the things that I've had to come, I'll, be, I'll tell you something very personal. One of the things I've had to come to terms with over the last maybe year or two is that there's an element of kind of sainthood I have to assume for the things that I believe in. And I just will, I have to let go of this extreme sense of injustice I have as an autistic person towards how it is never proportionate with the amount of effort I put into it. We will never, we, us that have seen the human death, will never be able to calmly and easily transit to, I've, I've never seen this and I can carry on through life and change my vocation into being a dentist as of tomorrow, goodbye. It's never going to happen for me or for others like us. It's, it is what it is. We know what we've seen. We know that we know things that will work and that people don't listen to us. So we cannot walk away from it, right? So I accept that forever I'm going to have to be doing and saying this forever and ever. Now, what I don't want is for people to not even comprehend what you say, there must be a, um, some form of a, of, a, of a statue in the city. There isn't one. Not only that, but if I am still in fintech circles or in fintech uh, tops, I will always be that cookie one that's on and on about the culture now. Uh, despite the fact that I'm a product person, I'm bloody, I have an agile fetish. I love making products. I'm the product owner of my product company. Like I am just the product person. I'm not this human that has to talk about it and stuff. But I also know that my product, without my vision and my insanity to insist, it's just never going to make it because anytime that people lay eyes on, our, on us, they go, oh, 
we have a lot more human debt in this enterprise than we ever assume. No one wants to touch this. They don't want to be open. They don't want to do better. So I can't go away from it. So it's why I've moved away from fintech because I saw the size of this human debt in other organizations and in other industries. And it was very clear, an issue that was stopping us from getting agile, an issue that was stopping us from, from delivering on the promise of technology. And an insane issue. It's, it's a really silly issue when you take distance from it. All it would take for the world to be a better place is for the universe to say, right, if you're in the knowledge field, here are the five tenets of Google's findings. Make sure every team in every enterprise in the universe has these five things in place. And then make sure you have no command and control and just good intentioned servant leaders on top of them. There you go. You know what you'd get? Bloody perfect cultures that are not perfect, but as close to humanly perfect as you can get, where people do work together. You don't need to do anything else. Nothing else. You heard me. None of the McKinsey hundreds of things you're paying for. None of them are necessary. So, sorry, I get very agitated. It's just a silly, silly topic that we have so much human debt when we could get rid of it in an intense one-year effort in all companies and then on Wednesdays, this is all you do. You talk to other humans. Goodbye. Okay, so let's stick with that for a second and throw all my other questions out of the window for now, because that's an interesting point. If it's that easy, why aren't we doing it? Because we're getting in our own way. Because we have bought into this workplace psychosis of what is the way that things should be. And we are all too blinded by impression management and fear of each other to test any other ways. That's what I think. Yeah, I mean, you talk about impression management in the book, and I think it did chime with me because I think I chatted about this with someone a while ago. That normally happens. But this idea that the majority of problems in work, almost because you have these two generally men, but, you know, obviously just people around the organization that are peacocking at each other all the time, trying desperately to look like they know everything and that they refuse to admit any weakness at all because they they seem to be judged or they, they feel that they're going to be judged as being a failure because they didn't have all of the answers or they didn't bluff their way through the thing or something like that. So do you think that impression management is at the root of a lot of this, this idea that people just need to seem powerful? I think it's a little bit more complex than that, if you'll allow me to go back to the definition, because it, I think it is really important that we know it isn't a behavior that is only reserved to those in power or a behavior that's rare, or in fact, it's a very human behavior that we engage in several times a day, maybe tens of times a day. And some of the, so it's normal human behavior to want to appear in a certain fashion to manage the impression that others are getting of you, right? So no one is saying that one should not have this happen, right? Some of this management is intrinsic to our identity, to how we present ourselves to the world. It's what, who we say we are. That's all right. And part of that is, and obviously you should keep doing that. Part of that is how we present ourselves in a professional fashion, sure. But where it becomes problematic is, first of all, when that professional fashion is completely unquestioned. So when your professional being becomes a brand that you have not reevaluated, hasn't grown with you, doesn't quite represent you because you weren't quite very autonomous or grown up or, or clear in your opinions when you formed it. And then you carry that with you and it becomes more and more 
tipped at by instances when you've been put down, punished, or made to not offer your opinion. And in time, those self-doubts grow, those moments when you don't offer your participation grow, and you end up being this individual who thinks they are a thinking person who is offering their input. They would if they would be asked, maybe, but they are in the space where anytime they think of opening their mouth and offering their, their opinion, they are held back by a fear. And this fear has been identified by science to be a fear of looking incompetent, a fear of looking intrusive, a fear of looking like you're asking for too much or a fear like you're not capable of something, incapable. And so these things are the, the types of fears that it, when you get that sort of, I can't say this, they're going to think I'm dumb or I can't say this, they're going to think I don't know something or I can't say this, they're going to think I don't know how to program this. That is when you, one, rob yourself of a moment of connecting with your team and of a moment of offering something which grows your connection to them and you rob your team of your perspective. So as a, as a collective, you cannot have innovation. You can't have collaboration. You can't have the things you need to have so that you move a product team along without having psychological safety. And the dark side of psychological safety is being psychologically unsafe and feeling this impression management need in these four ways, which is why these four things, we measure them in the very middle of our product, for instance. It took us years to realize until people start understanding, oh, I do sometimes bite my tongue because I'm afraid of looking stupid. And they start, it's a very simple CBT technique we employ, which is, Start noticing when it's happening and you'll notice it's happening less. Just keep yourself accountable to show up and you'll notice it's happening. Everyone can do this today. Why aren't they doing it? You tell me, Jason, why not? Because they know what it is. They know how to do it. I would say that one reason that they might not do it, even if they know that they want to do it, is simply because they actually do work for people that would shout them down if they did it, which obviously is the flip side of it. And I'm not suggesting that that means that they shouldn't try to do it, but yeah, we've all worked for bosses that would, you know, react really poorly to that. And Absolutely. I guess Absolutely. then there's a question that even if you do notice that you're doing it and you do notice that you want to do it less and you do try and start to do it less and you are then getting shouted down or penalized for doing it, what next in that situation, aside mm -hmm. from obviously yeah. go and get a job at a better company? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and these terms, right, are, we've talked about them for the last few years, right? Quiet quitting, active disengagement, um, the great resignation, all of these things. Ironically, I don't think any of these big moves have been in the technology realm as much as you'd think. I think when you look at the stats, a lot of the developers stayed very put, which concerns me deeply because in my opinion, that is exactly the segment they should have moved because they, they had the opportunity. And now, if anyone after the shakeup is still in a place where they're afraid to speak up and is in a technology position, I would suggest, and sound, I don't want it to sound condescending, but I don't know any other way than to be honest, which is forget that employer, quite quit all you like, and put your mind at building a personal brand today, right now. Go out there, say what you think, not to your employer because they don't want to hear it. To the world, you have a channel. Become a creator on LinkedIn. I don't care. Go tell your point of view because if you're in this day and age, you're telling me I'm not allowed to speak up that's on you. It's not only on your employer. The economy today, particularly for us in the knowledge industry, means we do not have to take it. We don't. Let's be honest. And then eventually when we don't, they'll have to give up command and control because it is dumb and they can't do that with grown-up professionals with a brand and some self-respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can try. 
Right, so the book People Before Tech interweaves two threads. I mean, there's more than two things in there, but two kind of core concepts, in my opinion. One of which is the importance of agility, which you've touched on. Now, obviously, agility itself is a loaded term these days, and whether you spell it with a big A or a little A or put the trademark after it, whatever. But also then the importance of psychological safety, which you've also touched upon. And everyone's kind of talking about these days, or at least trying to talk about it. It's at least in the discussion. Do you think that both of these things are required for an organization's people to thrive? Or can they kind of pick and mix? Like, is it all or nothing? They have to be agile. They have to be psychologically safe. Or is there some kind of spectrum there that they can kind of try and find their own little place in? No one has to be anything. No one has to be anything, right? It's not mandatory that we do anything. But in my view, if we're talking about a technology company, absolutely. There is no other way. I wish I could think that there is another way. But the reality of it is, the more I think about it, the more I realize that, you know, I've been talking about this for five years, six years. I've been saying the exact same things to the point that I'm, I'm discovering some articles of mine sometimes. And I go like, oh, my God, I completely agree. Oh, shit, I wrote this. <laughs> it's just embarrassing now. But I don't quite know why it takes us this immensely long to adopt Agile in the way I would want us to. I'm starting to think it's a um, neurodivergence versus neurotypical ability. But I don't want to go too much into that because I don't have enough data yet and I'm, I'm hyper interested in it. But irrespective of what mind it takes, you cannot do Agile until it has sipped, sept, whatever, gotten into your soul, until you have it in your DNA, until it is in your every breath. You just, it's not going to happen. You can do the process. You can show up for the stand-ups, be in your head, if, as long as you don't comprehend why things are being, you know, kind of ticketed or, or segmented that way, you're not going to get it. And you'll recognize you're doing agile when you think of other things that are not for work happening in your life that you have segmented the same way. I write that same way. I, I, we, we, we do our management sprints the same way. We wouldn't be able to exist otherwise. Can you even just imagine attempting a linear life again? I can't even, it's scary. Now, we don't have the time for this conversation. Yes, the world is going agile. Yes, we need DQ. And yes, we need to do the human work. And no buts about it. But if you're a, a company that doesn't need technology and your sequential waterfall process works for you and you can legally whip people into oblivion to do that stuff for you, go right ahead with your bad self. <laughs> Now, there's another image, but one of the terms that you've coined to describe some of the problems that companies have and people have within companies is this concept of human debt that we've talked about a little bit. We've kind of touched on it so far. So just for the record, how would you describe human debt specifically in terms that might resonate with people who've never really thought about any of this stuff in detail before? Right. Well, to me, human debt is... Exactly the same thing as tech debt, but for people. So all of the times when we didn't quite do the right thing, all of the times when we didn't quite say everything we wanted to, and there were those meetings where the emperors were naked and we all pretended they had clothes. <laughs> when we started saying that, you know, DNI is super important to us, but then some dude changed and then some people left and they wasn't trendy anymore. So we kind of dropped it. Every time we said we will care about teams and we'll ask you all the things, and we had some good intentions for a minute, and then we just kind of didn't care what you said anymore because we got busy. All of those times in an organization are creating more and more of this human debt. And it becomes so embedded 
And so fast, this is what's terrifying me most often these days, is to see startups and scale-ups in this situation. Oh, yeah. It genuinely terrifies me because if you are starting to have this paralysis and this inability to communicate and this inability to get close to your consumer and to do a real team thing, at this level, you are standing zero chance to exist in the next few years. And in, in some people, it is almost impossible. I've been asked to consult a couple of companies. Over, you, you've asked me earlier, do we do consulting? Yes, unfortunately, we have to do consulting because no one gets just technology these days, sadly. Much as I dislike it, we do. So I do all kinds of success-based models. Here, have this thing and use it. Let us go home sort of thing. But I've said no to some companies because I just don't think I could possibly help them. Or by the time I, I would have helped them, the industry would have moved on so fast in what they're doing that they can't catch up with the technology. Because the difference between me and other people is I can go in and say, this is the, this, I can see your tech debt as well. And I can see how you built it. I can see <laughs> the combination between them, how you build these two together. And I don't think you should, you should close shop is practically what I would have liked to have said to these people. And, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't just looking at it. It was also asking them, let's test this, let's try that, let's try that. And the extreme reticence to attempt very small changes. Where are you going to go with that? Where do you, how do you patch all the holes in a sinking boat in startups and in, in scale-ups? In bigger organizations, you have some hope because you're all in the same boat and you can moan and you can drink beer and you can tell each other how shite it is all. But when, who do you tell when it's, when the buck stops with you and you have too much imposter syndrome and you don't know how to be a boss any other way by, than by telling people what the fuck to do? And you don't know how to reconsider things and you've operated in cliches and scared people off and now you don't know if you have any value. Where do we take these people and how do we make them back into the useful people we needed? Well, I'm going to ask you your own question now, because where do we take those people? I mean, we've, I agree, by the way, there are a surprising number of companies out there that get some of the problems that you'd expect to see in big companies way too soon. And I kind of put this down maybe simplistically at the idea that maybe some of the people that they got in came from big companies and they kind of brought some of those problems with them. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. Maybe it's just the human condition. But where do you take those people apart from closing up shop? which I guess pretty much no one's going to want to hear, want to hear that. So is there anything that you can do in that? So not, maybe not you, but like anyone yeah. could potentially do to at least make some progress in the right direction. Right. Or are they just going to start to get dragged down by their human debt and never recover? There are multiple ways in which you can, you can tackle it, right? I am a firm believer that doing anything about it is better than nothing. It is kind of like immense weight or whatever or smoking a lot or anything like it, right? Just reducing a bit will be, will go a long bloody way. We'll live longer. So let us start, <laughs> let us at least let these teams, okay, let's reduce it at a very molecular level of agile and programming, which is pair programming. Can you tell me how people can pair program when they don't know if the other dude has any kids? Because it boggles my mind how we put two people to work with each other, to create with each other, to hold each other accountable. And those two people have no real emotional connection between themselves. No one has facilitated discussions. Vast majority of these people are non-neurotypical. It's really difficult for them to interact with other humans anyways. No one has given them any tools. So now they sit there uncomfortably for three quarters of their time 
and for a quarter of it, they get annoyed enough that they'll tell the other dude why he's an idiot. That isn't what we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, well, that doesn't sound like the best use of a pair programming pair, but uh, there are parallels. I mean, you've kind of paralleled it with tech debt already. And the thing that I like to talk about with regards to debt most of all is, I mean, it's the same as any kind of debt, right? It's the same as financial debt to some extent. There's a bunch of debt that you build up over time based on short-term decision-making or wanting to kick stuff down the road. And then you have this kind of concept of good debt, you know, maybe like a mortgage or bad debt, you know, maybe more like a credit card with a higher interest rate. And this kind of idea that as with tech debt, as with cash debt, or as with financial debt, you've got this kind of almost like a priority order mm. that you have to pay stuff off in. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to be mm. getting consumed by the interest payments. I guess the question is, though, does all human debt need to be paid off? Or is it really just a case of chopping off the worst of it? Mm. And that there's this kind of acceptable level of almost mm. underlying debt that no one's ever going to be perfect at. I think some debt will uh, time itself out of the enterprise and it will not be morally acceptable at some point. I think we, our generation has a lot, to, I cannot believe I'm saying this, and it is something that has occurred to me over the last, like literally few years. Through the power of social media, and I, I have come to, from loathing the youth and the, the snowflakery and the lack of wanting to execute and the, you name it, to realizing that the place they come from, the place of I am different and I will make you accept me for being different is an extremely valuable place that we should have fought for ourselves at our time and we didn't. And we have them to think that in the world of work, going forward, it will not be acceptable to be completely blind to people's differences, whether those are a, a need for accommodation. And thankfully, these accommodations are going now away from the more extreme things that are very evidently need to be saved, the bullying, the evident cases of discrimination. They're going more towards how do we now make it a place that works for everyone, including the fact that let's face it, in our industry, we have a higher percentage of neurodivergence than any other industries. We probably have one in two people that are thinking different than the other ones. And then we're sitting them down and we're forcing them to do what the other people are doing. Whether they can or not, we judge them on it, we penalize them on it, we make them do these things, and then we give them nothing to help them like, to come up to the requirements of this other world. So back to your question, what would I say to a company? Is, unless you want to close the doors, you have to go back to the drawing board completely and go, what is common work? What is solo work? Where, why do we never need to be in an office? When do we need to humanize? What are common outputs? How do I make people owners? How do I make people care? How do I make people love each other and have fun and be happy here? These are the only things you need to function. You, you figure out, then you slap an Aristotle principles on top of it. So you make sure that your data shows you, are they still dependable? Are they having psychological safety? Are they having impact? Are they, do they see their impact? Do they feel their purpose? And do they have structure and clarity, which in my opinion is the most overlooked thing in organizational anything these days. If you got just one thing right, get bloody structure and clarity and psychological safety right. So if you can get only one thing right, get these two. <laughs> but that's interesting because you talked earlier about your platform and the measurement and you talked just then about measurement as well, this idea that it's important to measure the change that you're having within your organization so that you can kind of be confident that it's happening in the first place. 
But this stuff is traditionally quite difficult to measure. And I certainly remember working in, for example, a mental health startup and having tremendous trouble trying to work out a way to sell the long-term benefits of mental health initiatives within organizations. And with my mentoring platform now, same kind of thing. Kind of feels like a nice to have for some people. And I know that there's a lot of people in that kind of HR tech space that are really struggling to kind of encapsulate the change that they're creating in the workplace in a way that actually resonates with maybe some of these hard-nosed, financially-minded, cost-driven top brass within companies. So you talked about it yourself again up front with regards to your platform. What is the best way to actually measure in a quantitative way how this stuff is working so you can kind of prove that it is? I think it's really an interesting question for various reasons. There are two types of measurement in my mind, right, that we need to get out of showing that we do the human work. And I don't, you know, to a degree, this is so much bigger than us that I don't even care if you buy from us or you make your own platform. I don't care at all. You do it by, by I, care, I care. I don't care from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, don't tell your investors that. <laughs> right, right. So I think it would be easier for anyone to have platforms. Obviously, don't do it by hand, but you could do it by hand, right? So the first thing I think, and why it matters is you need to measure to one, show progress so you can retain something I call organizational permission meaning the money, the okay, the support, the reminder, the time, the blockers, the no one tells you off, the even then the fact that you're rewarded. All of these things have to be part of this organizational permission so that you can actually feel what you're doing is not just some side project because you're the colorful hair person. So, <laughs> so that's a big one. That's measurement for that so that the organization sees something's happening is useful. But I would put it to you that has nothing to do with, with the type of measurement you also need to create to see change happening, right? So we realized when we were uh, studying for this, and when, so we researched tens of methods. We've tried three or four different iterations of this product. I don't even want to think about some of them, how, how far we went into producing perfect teams and perfect leaders and perfect, you name it, when none of this was possible. All that's possible is whatever people you have, make them do the thing together because they like each other, they enjoy it, and it's a, it's a decent thing to do, and it fills them with purpose. So we went through all of these things. What will make change? What will make change? Why would measurement mean something? And it wasn't until we realized it, it, the, the product and the market dragged us through this realization, which I think to me is, as a product owner was shocking because I should have worked it out otherwise. When COVID hit, we opened the product to everyone to get for kind of just anyone to use for free, because let's face it, no one was going to get approvals from a procurement department to use it. And there were loads of instantly distributed teams that were really struggling to show that they're even doing anything. So they needed to kind of come together somewhere. So for many people, it was the saving grace of having a common platform to kind of guide them through all that was happening. We even had these campaigns of we're all in this together. We know how you feel. A lot of the questions we were asking at the time, they were in um in a package created just to keep people knowing that we're all in the same boat. And the software at the time was essentially just a dashboard that was opening to the individual. The individual leader was seeing it and the individual contributors were seeing it. They were answering some questions. Then all of them would look at the dashboard and make some decisions for what they want to do as a team. It wasn't bad. Very, very clearly almost what we have today with the major difference that the market has brought, which is when we finally opened the access to everyone and tens, hundreds of teams flooded in, the first question we got instantly was, wait a minute, so I can see this platform? Yes. And my people can see this platform? Yeah. How? You share the screen. 
And then you, you, you kind of facilitate this conversation and this discovery of what they did and what they showed you. And the immediate question was, well, why can't they see it meanwhile? And when that question was asked, it dawned on us. Of course they can. There is zero reason why this sense of accountability for your own well-being as a team should be only the honest on the, on the, on, on whatever the scrum master or the agile coach that they were having or the team owner or whatever who was doing it. This has to be everyone's business. So as soon as we opened the view to everyone and everyone saw the dashboard, it changed the behavior in the actual product. And what we found was people were like, oh, now I have ownership. It depends on me. I see this data whenever I like. I can do anything about this whenever I like. People started leading actions. They started answering more questions than ever. They were using it overnight. It was a lovely period where people genuinely sunk their teeth into it. I think there's a thirst in humans to learn about the emotional side of things. I think there's a knowledge we can't continue without these behaviors. But I think there's a lack of tools and the lack of belief in ourselves that we can do it. No, I'll buy that. And it's interesting because it feels like almost the metrics themselves, I'm sure they're interesting, but it's almost the sharing of the metrics and the talking about those metrics, which is the real magic, right? Exactly Rather than having a little dashboard with a green light on it. Precisely that. It's a conversation space. It's a workspace for your feelings and your behaviors as a team. So that all sounds really good. And we've obviously covered various areas in quite short measure so far. And we're never going to be able to solve everything in one podcast, but I do oh, want to... Oh, no. Now you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, come back for part two, three, <laughs> four, five through 24. But I do want to get super actionable before we go and try and find some inspiration for a team leader or a business leader, maybe, who's maybe listening to this, or maybe they're already thinking about it a little bit. And they're starting to think about how they could start to clear their human credit card as soon as possible, start to pay off that debt, start to get their interest rate down, start to make sure that their repayments aren't crippling them. What is one first concrete step, the first stage that they maybe could try and go through again, if they've never done any of this stuff before, and they just want to get started with anything to try to make things a little bit better? I think that if they wanted one pivotal action, they could start by having the type of team action that will make a difference. And it's a hard thing to find. But once you find something that genuinely works for your team, the value of it is unmeasurable. I'll give you an example. We have something called in the software called team plays, which are essentially just telling people kind of, this is why you're doing it. This is how to ask three questions in a Miro board. This is what do you expect people to do? It's really simple. Anyone can read it. Now, uh, some of them are very mm, what you'd expect, and some of them are quite controversial. For instance, one of them is called a bitch fest. <laughs> in a bitch fest, it's a structured way in which people come together and they take complete these questions. If I were CEO for a day, or what I really, what really gets my goat is, or three years ago we made the wrong move and that was such and such, or I'm really sick of such and such. Once you get people to tell you what the bloody hell the, the, the chip is, and I, I am going to guarantee they all have chips, then you have a clearer atmosphere, you have an ability to move forward, and it's a different story. It might not work with all teams. If they're newly formed, they don't need that. What they need instead is a humor hackathon. So they know exactly how irreverent some are and how uptight others are. Maybe they don't need that. Maybe they need a team equals family thing because they don't know how old their kids are. I don't know what your team needs, but you need to find out what it is and to give it to them if you're a team leader of any kind tomorrow. 
That sounds good. And obviously, again, really speaks to the power of discussion and trying to work it out between you rather than just dictating something from the top. Well, hopefully a few people will be inspired to start paying their repayments a little bit quicker. But where can people find you after this if they want to find out about any of your old books, get updated on the new one, or tap you up for any banking advice? I don't know if I have as much banking advice as I used to have anymore. Um, (laughs) In fact, every time I do a financial technology futures thing, I just go like, well, there won't be a future because they don't understand the cultural problem. But uh, (laughs) so I bet they love that. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Um, But where where I can be found is kind of um, these days a bit of everywhere. Dwenablomstrom.com will have most of this, but there's a podcast called The Secret Society for Human Work Advocates. That is inviting all of us from technology, DevOps, or HR to just be like, get a fake address, tell us the real of why, what is the holdup? Why can't we do the human work? We're not making a buck on this at all. We just need to figure out what the deal is. What are the blockers? Let's remove blockers together. Then there's a podcast called People and Tech, which is with my dear technologist, long suffering, nearly suffering husband, Dave Ballantyne, who is a VP of tech and people and tech is just going to be a conversation between us about what is wrong with him. Why can't he get agile faster, as fast as I do? <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's not quite about that. He explains to me why, why life has to go a certain way. And I tell him why we should move faster. And so we do that live. And then obviously there's a book coming out in October called Tech-Led Culture. I believe culture will help us change technology and technology will help us change culture. It's amazing really at this point. And yeah, there's newsletters on LinkedIn, there's newsletters on my website, and there's YouTube channels and TikToks they can find me on. Well, people better get started from the sounds of it, otherwise they're not going to have any time to catch up with it all <laughs> before they retire. <laughs> but I'll make sure to link all that into the show notes anyway, obviously, and hopefully you get a few people heading in your direction, picking up a book or signing up to your newsletter. Well, that would be very useful. And I, w- I want to I make sure that uh, I, I extend this invitation live so you can't refuse it. So we're going to need to have you <laughs> on, on our podcast as well. We have a 10 minutes pop in uh, once every edition. So 10 minutes, maybe you can give us. I would be happy to give you as many minutes as you need. I've got a great microphone and the headphones and a light and everything. So I'm you're sure not, that you're not afraid to use them. Great. <laughs> not afraid. Well, I'm afraid to use them, but I kind of grit my teeth and get through it. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously super grateful you could spare the time to talk about some interesting, important topics and help us all clear down our own little bit of debt. Obviously, we'll stay in touch, as we've just said. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.